Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows firsthand how VR training platforms like ForgeFX can help meet the demand for skilled workers. Anywhere you go look, there's going to be a shortage of welders. VR training can help welding students learn the skills they need to begin and advance in their career. The beauty of virtual reality is it simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Explore more stories like Alex's at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Walmart Plus members save on meeting up with friends. Save on having them over for dinner with free delivery with no hidden fees or markups. That's groceries plus napkins plus that vegetable chopper to make things a bit easier. Plus, members save on gas to go meet them in their neck of the woods. Plus, when you're ready for the ultimate sign of friendship, start a show together with your included Paramount Plus subscription. Walmart Plus members save on this plus so much more. Start a 30-day free trial at walmartplus.com. Paramount Plus, a central plan only. Separate registration required. See Walmart Plus terms and conditions. I'm Alan Alda, and this is Clear and Vivid, conversations about connecting and communicating. One of the problems is that we only recognize Alzheimer's disease often when it's already at a pretty advanced stage. And so if you add to that the people who have mild cognitive impairment and then add the people whom I study, we call preclinical Alzheimer's disease before they have clear symptoms, you're probably talking 15 million people in the United States alone who are at some stage. Um, But I do have high hopes that if we could start treating much earlier, that we could uh, bring that symptomatic number much lower. And of course, that's the stage that's so devastating to people and their families. That's Dr. Reese Sperling. She's leading two major clinical trials aimed at the prevention of Alzheimer's disease. Her earlier research on how memories are formed in our brains is what led me to visit her lab in Boston several years ago. We were filming an episode of Scientific American Frontiers called Don't Forget. This is so great to be talking with you today and to see you again after all these years. Do you remember the last time we met? I was just coming out of an MRI machine and you told me I had a plump hippocampus. I know. And in fact, people have been uh, uh, giving me a hard time ever since then about whether their hippocampus is as plump as Alan Alda's. Uh, So I absolutely remember. I still have your picture from that up in my office, although sadly, I don't get to go to my office much these days right now. Well, I regale people at dinner parties all the time about my hippocampus. (laughs) And since we had that very interesting afternoon together... I think it's since then that you've been concentrating on Alzheimer's, isn't it? Yes. I, I, you know, I was already interested in Alzheimer's uh, back then, but I was really um, approaching it from studying normal memory or aging memory and comparing that to Alzheimer's. And one of the things that's really changed uh, is I really wanted to make a dent in trying to slow down Alzheimer's before it starts. So I really um, tried to take what we've learned from our imaging work and the memory test work and apply it in actual clinical trials. So I've really been focused in prevention trials and using all these methods to say, can we you know, stop the symptoms before they start? Boy, wouldn't that be wonderful? The, 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 the scale of the problem, it just seems to get worse and worse. What's the percentage of people now experiencing 
Alzheimer's? So it's estimated it's about one in nine uh, people over the age of 65, and that's really at the stage of dementia. Uh, so in the United States, that's um, about close to six million people now. Um, but I think one of the problems is that we only recognize Alzheimer's disease often when it's already at a pretty advanced stage. And so if you add to that the people who have mild cognitive impairment and then add the people whom I study, we call preclinical Alzheimer's disease before they have clear symptoms, you're probably talking 15 million people in the United States alone who are at some stage. Um, but I do have high hopes that if we could start treating much earlier, that we could uh, bring that symptomatic number much lower. And of course, that's the stage that's so devastating to people and their families. That would certainly be uh, ideal because as advances in medicine keep us alive longer, more and more of us will develop this disease. The rate is now phenomenal and it's not, we're in the middle of one pandemic and this is in a way a, a secondary epidemic that we don't we don't regard as such. Absolutely. In fact, you know, I have thought a lot about this over the past year um, because it seemed at times like, you know, everything is so focused on the COVID pandemic. And of course, that disproportionately affected people with Alzheimer's disease as well, because many people in nursing homes suffer from Alzheimer's disease. But some of our um, participants reminded me that finding a cure prevention for Alzheimer's was just as much essential work because once we get through this pandemic, you know, many more hundreds of thousands of people will have become symptomatic from Alzheimer's disease during this year. And we have to find a solution for them to keep them out of nursing homes altogether so we can avoid, you know, like the terrible things that have happened uh, in this pandemic in nursing homes. I heard from a member of Congress before we were suffering the present economic cracks in our society that within a few years, unless things get better, Alzheimer's can break the bank economically because so many people will need care. The, the, the uh, wear and tear on the families themselves, their ability to care for a patient and at the same time bring in money. We know now what it's like to have a hit to the economy in, in an extreme fashion. This might be added to it or we get over one and get into the other. Exactly. I think we, I hope we will come through the COVID pandemic and it'll obviously take us a while to recover economically, but Alzheimer's disease is coming like a slow wave uh, uh, hitting us. It's the only leading cause in the top 10 leading causes of death that we don't have a disease modifying treatment for. And I think even though we might be getting closer to finding something that'll bend the curve once people have symptoms, I really think we have to start before people get symptoms, just like we have in cancer and diabetes and HIV AIDS and preventing stroke. Um, really, we've had success in every other field in medicine, primarily by detecting symptoms before people have irreversible damage. And I think we must do that in Alzheimer's disease. 
Can you do it yet or are you on the track? I do think we can detect disease before people have symptoms quite well. Uh, now, that's a lot of what um, my group and many other groups over the past 10 years have been doing. So we now can detect amyloid plaques in the brain years before people get symptoms. And mostly we do that with PET scans, with these images, and you can, they're pretty sensitive at seeing these amyloid plaques. And very excitingly, just in the past year, there's more and more evidence that we might be able to use blood tests to detect um, plaque, uh, plaques that are in the brain, but you can actually see differences in blood. What we don't yet know though, is what are the factors that take somebody who's clinically normal, who doesn't really have much um, in the way of symptoms, and what makes them progress faster or slower towards Alzheimer's dementia. Um, we do know that the other protein that's important in Alzheimer's disease, people call it tau or tangles, is a big part of that. And so now we can detect tau in um, asymptomatic people as well. And we know that people of both amyloid and tau, unfortunately, um, are very unlikely to stay normal for long. So that's a group we're really targeting in trying to prevent them um, from progressing by using right now anti-amyloid therapies. And I can tell you more about those trials but coming will also be anti-tau, anti-tangle therapies, and one day I hope combination trials. What is amyloid and what is tau? Are they proteins? Do they belong in the brain? Do they have some function that's going awry, or what's what? What what are they? Great question. So, amyloid is um, amyloid beta. We call it is a protein that the brain makes normally. Nerve cells in the brain make normally, but as we get older our ability to kind of process it and get rid of it. I often think of it as taking out the garbage as unfortunately, as we get older, we have a hard time getting rid of um, amyloid beta in particular. And when it builds up, it seems to form these amyloid plaques in the brain. And we don't fully know whether it's the plaques themselves that cause the problem or these more, um, what we say, soluble, these smaller forms that are toxic uh, to nerve cells. Tau is somewhat similar in that it's a normal protein inside the nerve cells, but over time, it also has a problem with getting processed and forms, instead of plaques that are outside the cells, tau forms tingles inside the nerve cells. And this is actually very similar to other proteins that accumulate, such as alpha-synuclein in Parkinson's disease or something called TDP43 that accumulates with aging. So I do think some of this is just our brain's ability to handle our proteins as we get older, that we fail in being able to do that efficiently. And it just so happens that amyloid and tau are some of the most common proteins that build up, and especially in Alzheimer's disease. I've been meaning to ask you a, a kind of a personal question, and you can go into it as deeply as you feel comfortable. Your grandfather and father yes. had Alzheimer's. I guess there are two questions, both kind of uh, kind of obvious. One is, did did that drive your interest in Alzheimer's to do your research in that area? And the other one, the other question is, do you worry in a more personal way about your own 
the health of your own brain? Yeah, I I absolutely do. So the first one, um, my grandfather in particular did motivate my interest in Alzheimer's disease. Um, uh, I knew I was interested in the brain and I knew I was interested in memory even before I applied to medical school, but my grandfather developed symptoms right at the year actually that I was applying to medical school. And I really saw just a profound effect and he was my, you know, my favorite grandpa and it was really hard. Um, I So I think that motivated and I used to feel like I knew my dad and my aunt were at risk, but I thought, oh, I'll, you know, I'll make a dent before um, they are at risk. And so I have to say it was really hard when my father developed symptoms and um, he died um, about three years ago now. And he was a really brilliant chemical uh, engineering professor and um, really struggled and went down very quickly once he got diagnosed. So it was very, it definitely motivates me. I actually have written on the board of my office, remember the reason you do the research, because sometimes it's, you get um, lost in the day-to-day and the hard things that make research um, challenging but um, there's nothing like having seen it in your own family to motivate you. Um, your second question, I, I definitely worry about that. Fortunately, both my grandfather and my father really developed their symptoms in their very late 70s, mostly in their early 80s. So if I have their same genetic predisposition, I've got at least a few years left but I do sometimes think of it as a, a race. Um, you know, am I going to be able to make a dent, to be able to bring something in time, if hopefully for myself, because I really don't want my kids to have to look after me the way many families have to look after um, their patients. And certainly watching what it did to my mom and my trying to take care of my dad, I, I don't want my kids and my husband to have to do that. But I'll say... I I hope we're going to make a, a real dent before then. And if not for me, my generation, then definitely for the next generation. Are you in a position yet to test yourself to see if you're headed that way but asymptomatic? Yeah, you know, I, I thought about it a lot this year because I turned, well, last year really, I turned 60. And the earliest time you can really start to detect amyloid is in your 60s, most commonly after age 65. And um, this next trial we started this year, we actually went down to age 55 in people who have a a strong family history. So I did think about it. I don't believe I can be in my own trial, so it won't be this one. But I imagine that there will be a time, if any of these trials work, and certainly if um, there's something I should do differently by knowing um, that I've got early amyloid, I would get tested. And so these trials will read out and 2022 to 2025. And so in that time, I'll be getting close to that 65 age range. And I think I will get tested and hopefully have something I can do about it. I would be really impatient for the for the answer to that question if it were me. <laughs> I, am, I am very impatient for the answer as to whether we can 
been the curve of decline in people who have elevated amyloid. These trials take um, four and five years of following, you know, over a thousand people. And that, um, I have to say, it's really delayed gratification. I really feel like we need answers and I can't make it go faster. And in particular, COVID, we had a lot of our research participants have to go on hiatus um, this year during the trial. They have monthly infusions. And so I thought we'd be finished in mid-2022. Now it looks like it'll be early 2023, and I really can't wait. Now, how do the trials work? How do you recruit people? How do you know whether you're having an effect on the amyloid I mean, you used to find out by examining the cadaver. That's, that would be a little... Uh... We are definitely trying to prevent having uh, any cadavers in these trials. So first, in how we screen for the trials, I think this is really um, something that, you know, when we first proposed this, people said, you won't be able to do it. And I'm very thrilled uh, in the A4 study, we've, we published this paper last year to uh, show how that it is feasible to do. So basically, anybody in the A4 study between the ages of 65 and 85 who was clinically normal could come in and screen. Um, and we did memory tests to make sure that their memory was in a normal range. And then they went on to get a PET scan, an amyloid PET scan. And we performed 4,486 amyloid PET scans to find the more than 1,000 we needed for the trial. We had estimated that about 30% of the people who came in who met our criteria otherwise would show elevated amyloid plaque on the PET scans, and it ended up to be 29.5%. So that prediction was almost exactly on, and that prediction came from the cadavers by looking at how many people over the age of 65 had evidence of these amyloid plaques but were still normal. So that prediction was correct. Um, And then once people had elevated amyloid plaque in their brain, they continued in screening to make sure on an MRI they didn't have other abnormalities, that they didn't have a reason uh, health-wise that they couldn't be in the trial. And ultimately, we randomized about 1,168 people in the A4 study. And now in the AHEAD study, we're doing uh, something very similar, but because we're going down to age 55, in that younger group, age 55 to 64, we are looking for people who have additional risk factors, either a strong family history, a known genetic risk factor, such as a a gene that commonly contributes to um, late onset Alzheimer's disease called ApoE4. Um, Because between 55 and 64, the chances of having elevated amyloid are way below 30%. It's probably about 10%. And so we need these additional risk factors to find those people who are most likely to show elevated amyloid. But it is feasible um, to screen this many people. And now that we have blood tests coming, I'm thrilled because I believe that before we finish recruiting, for the AHEAD study, the AHEAD 345, we will employ blood tests to help us figure out who should get a PET scan. This will save millions of dollars and also save a lot of unnecessary PET scans for screening in the future.
When we come back from our break, I talk with Reese Sperling about her hopes for a medication, perhaps even a vaccine, to prevent the onset of Alzheimer's, and what we can all do in the meantime to reduce our risk. I want to thank all of you who have signed up to support Clear and Vivid on Patreon. It really helps us to bring you conversations with some of the most interesting people out there. Along with our sponsors, you make Clear and Vivid possible. If you haven't become a patron yet, here's how it works. If you visit patreon.com slash clearandvivid, you can subscribe for as little as $2 a month to get advanced news about coming shows and get listed on a virtual wall of generous benefactors, and there's even a modest bit of swag. If you go for a higher level of support, there's a lot of fun stuff coming your way. Videos and audio clips of moments with our guests that were fascinating but didn't make it into the show. Bonus episodes of behind-the-scenes chat as my producer Graham Chet and I put the shows together. Plus, for our top subscribers, a monthly video conference with me. That's been a wonderful experience. I love meeting the thoughtful, engaged people who listen to our podcast. And I'll even record a personalized voicemail message for your mobile phone. If you'd like to know more, just go to patreon.com slash clearandvivid. And remember, you don't have to become a patron to keep listening to the show. You can continue to listen for free, but you can get an awful lot of fun extras if you do become a subscriber. And most importantly, your patronage directly funds our work with the Alda Center for Communicating Science. So join us at patreon.com slash clearandvivid. That's patreon.com slash clearandvivid. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows VR training platforms like ForgeFX help students master their skills. There's a big learning curve with welding. Virtual reality simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Everything's changing so fast these days, and that's a great thing. I mean, back in my day, we were lucky if we could get one video to load on our desktop computer. But now there's the Xfinity 10G network. That means the fastest internet with faster speeds rolling out every day and internet that can power a house full of devices at once with ultra low lag. So while one person streams a movie from their room, another can play video games in the basement while another TikToks in the kitchen. It's the next generation 10G network only from Xfinity. The future starts now. Restrictions apply. Actual speeds vary and not guaranteed. Walmart Plus members save on meeting up with friends. Save on having them over for dinner with free delivery with no hidden fees or markups. That's groceries plus napkins plus that vegetable chopper to make things a bit easier. Plus, members save on gas to go meet them in their neck of the woods. Plus, when you're ready for the ultimate sign of friendship, start a show together with your included Paramount Plus subscription. Walmart Plus members save on this plus so much more. Start a 30-day free trial at walmartplus.com. Paramount Plus, a central plan only. Separate registration required. See Walmart Plus terms and conditions. This is Clear and Vivid, and now back to my conversation with Reese Sperling. What are you aiming for first? I mean, eventually, will you have, will you have a medication that attacks the amyloid before we ever see symptoms? Yes, so in the same way that um, we treat people, let's say, with a statin to lower cholesterol, if you give that you know, statin to somebody who's already um, in the ICU with heart failure, it does nothing. 
If you give it to somebody who has had a heart attack but still has good heart function, you can at least prevent, hopefully, their next heart attack, although you can't restore any damage that's done. But by giving statins and lowering cholesterol to people before they have a stroke or before they ever have any heart symptoms, we've lowered cardiac morbidity and mortality in our country by 28%. So I think we can do that in Alzheimer's disease. And just like um, cholesterol for heart disease, I think amyloid's only one piece of the puzzle. I, I believe this is an early instigator, but it is certainly not everything uh, that causes memory problems in Alzheimer's disease. It may be 10 years upstream, but I think if you could get it at the right time, you'd make a huge dent in being able to bend that curve. Um, we estimate if we could slow cognitive decline by 30%, similar to that 28% I just mentioned, we could potentially prevent half the cases of dementia. Because I always like to say then people can die out ballroom dancing instead of nursing homes if we could just delay the terrible part of Alzheimer's disease by five years. Um, so that's what we're aiming for. And we have one trial that started already and we'll get answers again in 2022 or 2023. And this year, we started a brand new trial. It's called the AHEAD 345 study. That's the one that goes down to age 55 and goes down to even lower levels of amyloid plaque buildup because maybe what we need to do is actually prevent people from getting a head full of amyloid altogether um, because that seems to already set off these uh, problems with building up the tangles or losing nerve cells. So our hope is we could start um, even earlier and that's what we're doing in the AHEAD study. When you mentioned memory before, you you reminded me of how how memory seems to be one of the most important losses you get with Alzheimer's, maybe the most important. And I'm wondering why why does that happen? What in in, in this sense, neurons die or or are lost in some way because of the amyloid plaques and the tangles from tau. Why does it hit memory so hard? There's a lot of different functions in the brain, a lot of different networks it could attack. Why do you suppose it goes after memory? I think that's an excellent question. I'm going to answer it in two ways because we do know that the tau tangles seem to really like the parts of the brain that are important for memory. So we were talking about your plump hippocampus before. So tangles really like um, going in the hippocampus and as parts of the brain that connect to the hippocampus um, in particular. It might be a good idea to mention at this point what the hippocampus is mainly used for. So the hippocampus is um, a structure very deep in the brain. We have one on the right side, one on the left side. Um, the part of the brain that's very important for forming new memories and potentially for what we call consolidating them. So the actual memories 
don't live in the hippocampus. They're distributed throughout the brain, we think. And the hippocampus somehow is able to kind of coordinate and re-trigger these um, um, connections between nerve cells throughout the brain. But we think that the hippocampus kind of forms that episodic memory and might be important for reactivating it when you get a stimulus. So people with Alzheimer's disease um, lose the ability to form new memories. And especially they uh, have difficulty with what we call shorter term memory. So remembering something from five minutes ago, five hours ago, five days ago, but they often have amazingly preserved memory from five years ago or 50 years ago in their early stages. So this hippocampus really is important for forming these new memories. And unfortunately, it is very vulnerable to one of the pathologies of Alzheimer's disease, that is the tau tangles. But having said that, your other question about there's so many different um, parts of thinking and cognition, why is it memory? So we've also learned, and this is something that I was somewhat surprised by, that even though memory is the symptom that people often talk about and that they um, report as being most troublesome, a lot of the other thinking and cognitive domains change very early in Alzheimer's disease. So there's something we often call executive function, which is kind of the ability to multitask and switch and organize um, your thoughts and your plans. And that also changes um, early on in Alzheimer's disease. And some people maybe even before the severe memory deficits. And that executive function seen is uh, subserved by the parts of the brain where amyloid is laying down early and is one of the earliest changes. So we've learned that even though we often think of memory as the most salient symptom in Alzheimer's disease, it's not the only one, especially early. And I think that's telling that the amyloid goes with the non-memory symptoms and the tau goes with the memory symptoms. And unfortunately, by the time people get to mild cognitive impairment or dementia, they typically have both and both memory problems and executive function. And that's why they lose independence and you know have more difficulty doing complex tasks. So where are we now? How would you describe where we are now, what's in the near future based on this research? Well, we have seen that there um, might be some signals of um, benefit with trials that have gone on over the past couple of years um, at the stage of mild cognitive impairment or very mild dementia. So this includes um, aducanumab and several other antibodies that are being uh, tried that really are very effective at reducing amyloid plaque burden in the brain. And what we don't yet know for certain is whether that actually slows the progression, but there is some evidence in support of that. Um, there's one trial that is the FDA will decide about uh, this year in aducanumab. Um, I don't know whether it will be approved or not. Um, I do think that there's some important signals there, though, that suggest that if we went even earlier in the diseases, as we are trying to do and people don't yet have symptoms, we might be able to get a bigger, what we call effect size, really change that curve so that people don't uh, progress uh, substantially. 
But ultimately, we want to go to what we call active vaccination or immunization. So just like we're now doing with COVID, where you are giving a protein, a piece of the protein to zoop up the body's immune systems against that um, uh, viral protein, we can one day, I hope, do that in Alzheimer's disease where we immunize people against amyloid and perhaps tau. We don't fully know how to do that yet. So right now we're using these passive immunization, the uh, antibodies. Well, you're making progress pretty fast. What can we do in the meantime, though, to keep ourselves as healthy as possible, even though we might be building up plaque without even knowing it? Well, I think one of the uh, most compelling uh, things we can do is to keep our brains healthy and resilient. And we have looked at a lot of um, factors that um, interact with the amyloid to hasten decline. And uh, starting a couple of years ago, we started to see that vascular risk factors such as high blood pressure or um, high cholesterol actually interacted with amyloid to hasten decline. So I really encourage people to decrease their vascular risk factors, stay you know healthy, a heart healthy diet is a brain healthy diet. And exercise is probably the number one thing that really seems to be helpful. Not only does it decrease your vascular risk, but it probably also zoops up some of these um, protective brain um, processes, these um, brain-derived neural growth factors, as well as helps you sleep better, which is also important for preventing uh, the buildup of amyloid and tau. So right now, I'd uh, exercise a lot and sleep well and uh, keep your heart and brain uh, healthy until we have something to help you remove the amyloid. What about what I hear about so often, doing puzzles? Does that actually help or do do we know for sure? You know, um, there have been a few studies and unfortunately I don't think doing crossword puzzles or Sudoku or mental bowling right now has any evidence that that delays decline. Um, I, this is sad because if you like doing crossword puzzles, great, do them. But in fact, the evidence suggests that it's better to be um, socially and mentally and physically active with other people. So in fact, being at home, doing this training or puzzles or things by yourself has potentially uh, a negative effect compared to when we could with COVID, going out and doing something with other people, exercising, going for walks, ballroom, dancing, all of these socially, physically uh, interactive ways of keeping your brain sharp seem to be better than doing puzzles yourself. That's interesting. You mentioned social interaction. It seems to be important to overall health. Is there a specific benefit, you think, related to Alzheimer's? I do. Um, And we have some evidence um, for this. So there seems to be one, I think, Um, Being with other people, staying connected, socially uh, active, I think does activate the parts of the brain that are unfortunately often affected by Alzheimer's uh, disease. I think it gives people a sense of purpose, um, which seems to be important for keeping your brain uh, resilient. And again, study after study really suggests that activities that combine social, physical, mental, um, like, again, ballroom dancing, seems to be uh, the most protective. So at least for my patients, when I see them in the clinic who are already symptomatic, 
I strongly encourage them to actually redouble their efforts to have social activities, be with other people, find uh, things that they can do outside, ideally, with other people, and um, keep those connections. I have so many more things to ask you about, but our time is running out. We always end our conversations with seven quick questions. All right. Here's the first one. What do you wish you really understood? I wish I really understood why some people with elevated amyloid plaques decline faster um, and get tau and other people don't. I wish you understood that too. (laughs) I I wish it were known. How do you tell someone they have their facts wrong? Well, I try to tell them that um, we all have to be humble, uh, at least about Alzheimer's disease, because um, we don't have all the facts. Um, But I point to the evidence we have so far and try to say this evidence suggests that these are might be some of the culprits. Um, But I, you know, I don't think I have all my facts correct yet. So I have a hard time telling someone else they're wrong until we all get clear answers. What's the strangest question anyone has ever asked you? Um, Are my hippocampus plumper than Alan Alda's? (laughs) Okay, now now be honest. Have you ever found anybody with a plumper hippocampus? (laughs) Um, You know, I don't don't measure them all in comparison to you. (laughs) Okay, next question. How do you stop a compulsive talker? Oh, I would say... um, I am a compulsive talker, so I just talk louder and faster over them. That, that may be the best defense. Let's say you're at a dinner party when we're able to have them again, and you're sitting next to someone you don't know. How do you strike up a real, authentic conversation with that person? I don't know at a dinner party, but I often ask people in 10 years, who do they want to be? Where do they want to be? Um, I, at least when I interview young people who I don't know, I, I always start with that question because you get all kinds of responses, but I feel like it really gives a window into, you know, who someone wants to become and are they doing what they want to now or, you know, what who do they wish they'll be in 10 years from now? Okay. What gives you confidence? Uh, um, I'd say what gives me confidence is that I have the opportunity that I'm training some amazing young people. And it gives me confidence that even if I don't fully succeed, that um, there are people coming up in our teams, the next generation scientists who are going to get find answers. So it gives me confidence to work with them and watch them grow and know that one of them is going to get us to the end game. Last question. What book changed your life? Okay. Uh, awakenings. Um, no, actually not Awakenings. The man who mistook his life, his wife for a hat, but it was definitely Oliver Sacks. Um, I, I was kind of deciding, do I want to be a neurologist, a psychiatrist, a neuroscientist, a neuropsychologist? And I read The Man Who Mistook His, his uh, um, Wife for a Hat and uh, the stories in there. And I just thought, this is it. I got to figure out how the brain works. Well, Oliver Sacks was a wonderful communicator of science, and so are you. 
And the science that you're communicating about is so important to all of us. So thank you so much. Thank you for that. And thank you for this uh, wonderful conversation today. Well, thank you for asking such great questions and keeping your hippocampus plump so that you can remember all of these things to ask. Don't embarrass me. (laughs) Thank you so much. This has been Clear and Vivid. At least I hope so. My thanks to the sponsor of this podcast and to all of you who support our show on Patreon. You keep Clear and Vivid up and running. And after we pay expenses, whatever is left over goes to the Alda Center for Communicating Science at Stony Brook University. So your support is contributing to the better communication of science. We're very grateful. Risha Sperling is a professor in neurology at Harvard Medical School and the director of the Center for Alzheimer Research and Treatment at Brigham and Women's Hospital. You can find out more about the prevention trials she's leading at aptwebstudy.org. This episode was edited and produced by our executive producer, Graham Shedd, with help from our associate producer, Jean Chimay. Our sound engineer is Dan DeZula, And our publicist is Sarah Hill. You can subscribe to our podcast for free at Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you like to listen. Walmart Plus members save on meeting up with friends. Save on having them over for dinner with free delivery with no hidden fees or markups. That's groceries plus napkins plus that vegetable chopper to make things a bit easier. Plus, members save on gas to go meet them in their neck of the woods. Plus, when you're ready for the ultimate sign of friendship, start a show together with your included Paramount Plus subscription. Walmart Plus members save on this plus so much more. Start a 30-day free trial at walmartplus.com. Paramount Plus, a central plan only. Separate registration required. See Walmart Plus terms and conditions. Next in our series of conversations, I talk with Ash Sanders and Sarah Ventry, who spent four and a half years reporting the story of an isolated community of fundamentalist Mormons, a community that devolved into a cult of personality. What people have to understand about this place is that it was ruled by a prophet. It was a theocracy, and the prophet spoke for God. So if the prophet said you needed to do something, that was God saying you needed to do that. And that's why so many of the people in this town, even when things started to get worse and worse, even when Elisa was faced with the prospect of marrying her 19-year-old cousin at the age of 14, they stayed and they did that because it was a commandment. Ash Sanders and her co-host Sarah Ventry talk about their experience creating the fascinating podcast series Unfinished Short Creek, next time on Clear and Vivid. For more details about Clear and Vivid and to sign up for my newsletter, please visit alanalda.com. And you can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at Clear and Vivid, and I'm on Twitter at Alan Alda. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.